You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 70 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, I am joined by Sean Atwood, who is a former stock market millionaire and ecstasy distributor turned public speaker, author and activist. While in prison for almost six years in the United States, Sean began documenting the conditions of the prison and smuggling smuggling this account out of the prison in legal correspondence that he gave to a relative and these accounts were posted online on a blog titled John's Jail Journal and uh, Sean is now banned from the United States he's returned to to England and he's a free man and uh, he works by scaring kids to behave so they don't end up in such a horrible prison as he did And his story was also featured worldwide on the National Geographic channel. And you can check out his website, seanatwood.com. Apart from talking about the war on drugs and uh, the documentary Making a Murderer, we are also talking a lot about his experiences in prison. And you are about to hear some gruesome things, as well as some positive things, because... Sean's experience in prison did turn his life around. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Alex. So tell the listeners a bit about who you are. Well, I am from a little town in the UK, originally up in the north. And I went over to America, made some money in the stock market, which went to my head. And started to throw big rave parties of it. Had people bringing ecstasy over. And then the SWAT team came and smashed my door down. So I take full responsibility for what happened. America was good to me. And I was not only breaking the law. And then I ended up in this jail that not only were the gang members murdered into prisoners, even the guards were murdered into prisoners. And my writing got smuggled out of the jail. I never set out to be a writer. And that's what led to me becoming an author because my blog got put on the internet and it attracted a lot of media attention to the human rights violations. How long were you in prison in America? Just under six years and it was the perfect amount of time to make me grow up as a person and get my life sorted out. There was never any talk of like handing you over to, to England? To hand me over to England, you have to initiate a prison transfer to start that process, you have to be sentenced. And I was fighting my case for 26 months. And then once you're sentenced, it depends on where you are housed, but the, the wheels of bureaucracy move awfully slow, and those prison transfers can take a long time. So it wasn't worth me actually initiating that process. Does it feel like a dream now, those years? Yeah, it does. I look back and think that, you know, back in 2003, I was living in a cockroach-infested cell. I had skin infections and bed sores that were bleeding. I had a pink eye infection, pus coming out my eye. 
prosecutor was telling me I was facing a 200-year maximum sentence. And I was pushed to the brink of suicidal insanity at that point. What made you not go that way? Well, I planned to do it, but I was going to just slash my wrists after a guard did a walk and then just bleed out. But what stopped me was I wanted to say goodbye to my family and friends and I pulled out the pictures of them. I had seven pictures. I was allowed seven pictures. So I'm looking at the pictures of my mom, dad, sister, girlfriend, and I'm thinking, you know, my mom was going to get a call saying he's slashed his wrist in the jail cell. I couldn't bear the thought of putting my family through that. And that's that's what stopped me from do, wanting to do it. And also, you know, I'm, I'm imagine you have suffered some trauma after this or well yeah but i don't want to sound like i'm whining here you know i brought incarceration upon myself and i don't want to sound self-pitying it strengthened me i, I had to mature as a person because i was living such a dangerous lifestyle and even getting pushed to that point of suicidal insanity i credit now with strengthening me mentally to enable me to just go out and enjoy life and not um look for fun in all the wrong places Now the reason I asked also was because it can be quite ironic because you you got caught for dealing ecstasy, but now they're starting to use ecstasy to just cure traumatic experiences. Well, yeah, that's how it started in the first place. It was used for marriage counseling and in psychotherapy. So um, when uh, you know now uh, many years later, you feel like you are. Uh, a uh, uh, more evolved person than you were before you even went to prison? I thought I knew everything before I went to prison. And I never read books. I thought reading was frivolous. And I got in there and I read over a thousand books in just under six years. And I immediately realized how little I knew and how much there was to learn. So going on that fantastic journey through literature, I read a lot of the original texts in philosophy and psychology And I had a brilliant therapist as well who was holistic, believed in Eastern philosophy. And together, you know, he, he helped me lay down a framework so I wouldn't go back to drugs. What was it that made you get caught up in the, you know, the stock market you said and all the money? Was it all this like bling bling? <laughs> back then, I'd watched a movie called Wall Street and the motto was greed is good. And I was a teenager, and all I could think about was conquering the world, and I borrowed some money off my nan and put it in the stock market, and it doubled, and I was just hooked from then on. I went down to the library, ordered dozens of books on the subject, so I had this unnatural interest in the stock market at this young age, and that was my goal then, to go America and just conquer Wall Street. And and, and looking back now, what's your view on, on this greed is good? <laughs> <laughs> rule your desires lest your desires rule you was one of the quotes I went over with the therapist and greed for money if you let it rule you then it will ruin you because um, there must have been a moment when you had like when you had the most amount of money and all these material things and you felt like successful but Did you ever still feel like empty somehow? Yeah, I did, because I was doing drugs to try and fill that emptiness. And even though I had some wild, crazy, fun times without the drugs and without the money, and you look back and you just think, you know, 
um, shallow. It was it was shallow. Because like sometimes rich people or famous people say that money doesn't give them happiness, and then normal people say, "Well, that's easy for you to say because you're you're rich." But you know, how would you respond? Because you've you've been rich and gone through that. It's a double-edged sword. I'm not knocking success. It's good to have a goal and be successful and be rewarded financially. But happiness is in the heart at the end of the day. And you can make all the money in the world, but you might just be trying to fill a void in your soul. If you don't know how to be happy in your heart, then you're never going to be happy in life. How did you then manage to, you know, was your sentence finished when you came back to England or did you get like pardoned or something? No, you have to finish your sentence. I was a first-time non-violent drug offender. So I served just under six years, and then I got deported, and I'm banned from America for life. So if you ever go there, they'll like just send you back? No. If I go to America, I'll be arrested. I'll have to finish the balance of my sentence, which is three and a half years, and I'll get another five to ten years added on. Yeah, so it's not w- worth it. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, I could go back there easily. I used to smuggle people in through Mexico and stuff like that. But I wouldn't try. So then uh, after all this, you you wrote the book, correct? Yeah, I've got four books out now and I've got two more in the pipeline. Oh, okay. So uh, tell a bit about those books. Well, my life story is a trilogy. It was published by Random House. And Party Time is all the crazy stuff that I did that led to my arrest. Hard Time is my time in the jail, 26 months on remand. Prison Time is my time in the Arizona Department of Corrections. And then my other book is just a little self-help book for students called Life Lessons. Because my job now is I go in schools, scare the living daylights out of school kids with my story in the hope they won't get involved in drugs and crime like I did. What what of, of all those stories, which one is the one that usually makes their faces go white. <laughs> the prison gang rape and beheading story. So how how does that go? Well, I met an interesting uh, group of people in prison that I started blogging about. All fascinating characters from different uh, races and cliques and, and in the prison. And one of them was my friend Zena, six and a half foot transgender that is physically born as a man but believes I'm going to say she because it's it's disrespectful to say he she believes she's a woman trapped in a man's body and Zena woke up one morning drank a cup of coffee grabbed a razor blade and tried to cut her man parts off this is just a bit of background on on Zena uh, before I get to the gang rape and beheading story. Basically, what she did was, I don't go into this level in the schools, she drew a line on her scrotum. She didn't have any painkillers. Took a razor blade, slashed the scrotum open. The testicles are like on branches, two branches. She severed one testicle off and the other testicle retracted and hid in her body and she hand, had her hand up inside herself in her guts feeling around for it and, and where she tied it off to stop the blood come undone and blood started spraying across the cell and she started bleeding to death and they get a helicopter just in time to get to hospital to save her life but when Zena first came in she was big 
weightlifting, clicked up with the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang as a debt collector. And these gangs just use people up. And when they finish with them, they do brutal things, sometimes murder them. And in Zena's case, they beat her down, raped her, shoved things inside her body, raped her while she was unconscious. And I said to Zena, I said, well, if you were unconscious, how do you know that they were raping you? And she said, well, when I went to the toilet afterwards, I could tell by what came out. And I said, how did you stop it? She took the abuse for as long as she could. Um, she did get moved, but the same thing happened again. She got punked out, used as a sex toy prostitute. But eventually she started fighting back. And she told the gang members that she didn't care if she lived or died. And the final two times they came to rape her, the first member of the gang to put his hand on her, she plucked his eyeball out so it was dangling from the optic nerve. And after doing that twice, they left her alone, but they moved on to some of her friends. One of her friends was gang raped. They took a light bulb out of, and then they stuck it, the light bulb, in that person's behind, smashed it while it was in there. That prisoner committed suicide afterwards because there's no recourse. The guards won't help you if you've been raped. Um, you're, you're a snitch if you say anything to the guards, and that's the gang rule is kill on sight for snitches, KOS. And another friend of Zena's that they went after, they gang-raped, got a shovel from the work crew, held that person down and, and cut his head off. And when the head was finally off, they picked it up, positioned it in an area of the prison where the rival gangs would see it to make the point they were the most violent and ruthless out of all the gangs. And that was the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang. Yeah, that, that must be a very good deterrent story. <laughs> well... I asked some of the students, you know, in the six formers, because I don't tell it to the younger ones, what affected them the most about the talk. And a lot of them do say it was Zena's story. And, you know, are all prisons in, in, in America that violent? Prisons in America generally are violent, yes. In Arizona, perhaps it goes to an extreme out there, I'm not sure. But if you look at the history of the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang, which started out of California, they basically control the entire white race now across America in the prison system. And it's turned into this massive murder for hire and drugs business on the streets outside the prison as well. And according to the authorities in America, the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang is now one of the leading causes of murder in the entire United States. And when you go to prison in America, you have to click with a certain group. You you can't like make it being alone, right? Yeah, I've just put some videos on my YouTube channel about prison survival advice and dealing with the gangs. Um, as, as soon as you go in, they come up to you. They want to know your charges. And you can't lie because your charges are on a little printout from the jail. And some charges are KOS, kill on sight, such as sex offences against children, paedophiles. Some charges are SOS, smash on sight, like drive-by shootings, because women and kids sometimes get hit. And then once, you, once they've checked the charges, you have to go and meet the, the leader of the gang and who tells you all the rules you've got to follow, otherwise all the gang will smash you. If someone calls you a punk, a bitch, or hits you, you've got to fight them right away. You've got to take showers... Can't go making friends with the guards. Can't go sitting at the tables with the other races. 
and so on and so on. If you violate any of these rules, they just send a pack of young prisoners in called torpedoes. And these are just guys who are looking to beat someone up so they can rise up in the gang. Because to rise up in the gang, you have to commit acts of violence to earn your tattoos. And to be a full member of the Aryan Brotherhood, you have to murder someone for them in the jail to get that tattoo. Do you also have to believe what they believe, like their racist opinions? You know what? There is an element of that in there. But what happens is, over time, once you get settled in, you learn how to play around the gang rules. So by towards the end of my incarceration, you know, I had friends who were black and stuff like that because I'd established myself with some powerful people. And I tried to just stay in my cell reading and writing and staying away from all that drugs, drama and violence and insanity. Like make yourself invisible. Yeah, but if you do that, there are people who they make fun of getting you, causing trouble in your life. They'll go out their way because they don't like people just to be making themselves invisible. It, it's, they view that as suspicious. But the charges you had were fine with those people. Yeah, as long as you got drug crimes or it's related to drugs in some way, you're fine in terms of your charge check. And in my case, I had drug crimes, so they left me alone about the charges. I imagine like if you're a cop killer, you'll, you'll do fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, you'd be a hero. The people at the top are the people who kill rival gangsters. If you murder only rival gangsters, you're at the top of the prison hierarchy. If you murder a woman or a child, it's kill on sight. So I had a guy protecting me later on, two Tonys. He was serving 141 years for killing rival gangsters. Once he took me under his wing, I never got attacked again. So like pedophiles, they don't last long at all? No, pedophiles, generally, they'll try and be separated and go into their own prison. And in Arizona, the general population, they were serving food to the pedophile prison. So they broke open all of the thermometers and put the mercury into the food. And dozens of the sex offenders went into comas. Do you think this is because, I mean, usually those violent criminals have been abused themselves, or is it just because people don't like pedophiles? Both. There are many people in prison who have got severe drug addictions, which stem from childhood abuse, and they go into prison, and it just exacerbates the stress and their addiction and these guys just are institutionalized and they just keep coming right back. But, you know, in your in your case, I mean, prison reformed you in a way, like you changed your ways. But still, it must, it should be, shouldn't it be like a better way to do that than to have to go spend time in such a violent place and still be reformed? Yeah, I mean, I'm a poster child for the prison. But if you look at FBI statistics, reoffending and crime in Arizona are off the scale. They're some of the highest in America. And it doesn't work generally because young people come in. Most arrests in America are for nonviolent drug offenders. And the majority of them are people getting arrested with weed, not dealing, just possession. You got over half a million arrests a year. So these people get arrested for weed, come in the prison system, get scared, click up with the gang, they graduate to shooting up heroin crystal meth, taking spice, 
and they become enemies of society because they get these neo-Nazi tattoos. You know, how are you going to get a job if you're going to get a swastika on your forehead and then get out of prison and go for a job interview? The gang knows that, and that's why they do it. And the prison doesn't give them any rehabilitation. They allow it to be drug and gang infested because every prisoner who comes back keeps them in business. It's $50,000 a year of taxpayers' money per prisoner. It's just a massive money-making scheme. And that's why you've got states like California spending more on prisons than they are on education. Let's cut education and increase our prisons because we know we can fill them up. It's really sick. It's the fact that they're private that's the problem. Yep, Corrections Corporation of America are boasting in the annual reports to their shareholders. Our profit growth is guaranteed because they keep coming back. They're not correcting them, they're breaking them. Is it the same in the UK or is are those not private? Yeah, it's getting like they're softening the public up to bring over this US style justice. What they do first off, they, they break the state system. And when the state system's all run down and broken, then they say, oh, how can we fix this now? I know. Let's bring in the private prisons. And then the private prisons come in as the saviors. And then in Arizona, one of the private prisons there, they cut the night patrol to save money. And some prisoners escaped. As they were escaping, the alarm went off. But the alarm had gone off hundreds of times so far that month that nobody paid attention to it anymore. And these prisoners escaped and, and murdered some people. Did you have to spend time in prison in the UK when you came back? No, I did not spend any time in UK prison. So just thinking maybe if there was a comparison, it's still very soft there compared to America maybe, or is, is it getting very violent in the, in the UK as well? I spoke to a magistrate up in Salford, and he said in the private prison up in Manchester... They've cut the staff, so there's two guards watching hundreds of prisoners, and it's just getting completely out of control. So it's a slow process, but it's tiptoeing towards this American system. But why doesn't the guard want to, to help somebody getting gang raped, you know? Why don't the guards prevent gang rape? Good question. I've never been asked that before. The gang members who rape the prisoners, they know where the blind spots are. And the attitude of the guards, some of these good old boys, is if you're not man enough to stand up for yourself, then getting raped is just part of your punishment. Yeah, but like, you know, if you sold 10 grams of weed, you don't deserve to get gang raped, you know? <laughs> well, we know that. But the system couldn't care less. I mean, if you are a gang rapist, then yeah, maybe, but then it's more... Uh, fitting but otherwise it's, that's why it's so I mean I guess most of the people in prison in America are are there for crimes that are not that bad compared to like murder and rape of course the media lets people think that prisoners are all pedophile serial killers extreme crimes that's all you hear and how easy it is they've all got playstations and what they're all watching TV and eating gourmet food you know, and that's why I fought before I got arrested, lock them up and throw away the key. But once I got in there and saw it was the warehousing of nonviolent drug offenders, people with addiction issues, a lot of mentally ill. It's the biggest house of mentally ill, the prison system in America. People of color, four times more likely to get arrested for the same crime as a white person. 
it's basically society's most vulnerable people. And once I started hearing all the sad stories of how they were thrown away as kids, state-raised, abused by parents, or seeing traumatic things like parents get killed, you know, and I put myself in there. I had all these advantages in life, and I felt ashamed, and it opened my heart to what was going on. I thought, I'm going to try and articulate their situation and, and you know, put stuff online and, and see if anyone notices it and try and raise public awareness of what's really going on. So you were writing this blog, but you didn't have any access to the Internet. So how how did you get it online? I was in maximum security jail, and my aunt would visit me on the weekends. So I hid what I wrote in legal paperwork, letters, and stuff I could release to my aunt through visitation. So the first time I went up there, my heart's going like crazy thinking the guard's going to find it. And he starts searching through it, but they're trained to look for contraband, drugs, syringes, cash, weapons. So he's not looking at things that have been written down as anything that's a threat or contraband. And that's how he got under the radar. At the end of the visit, my aunt grabbed that stuff from the guard and she took them out of the jail and typed them up, emailed them to my family in the UK. And with the help of my parents, uh, that's how the blog started. They were posting them to the internet. What happened with the blog? Did people notice it? And They did. It took me by surprise. I thought only my friends and family would ever read it. But it turned out that it was actually the first prison blog. And the BBC ran some excerpts. And the Guardian newspaper in the UK ran excerpts. And it snowballed from there. And it went on to attract international media attention to the conditions in that jail. And that one jail was closed down a couple of years later, but that sheriff runs six different jails, so a lot of this stuff is still going on. I've got videos on my YouTube channel of gang members and guards murdering prisoners. And the guards, they're not murdering big bad gang members. The, the One of the videos is a guy who's come back from the war in the Middle East. He's traumatized, mentally ill. He's in a cell. The guards approach him. And he doesn't strike anybody or kick or punch or anything. And they just grab him, throw him down, pile on him like a pack of wolves, beating him. And you know, and then they get out these taser guns and start electrocuting him. And, and he just has a heart attack and dies. But was it, was it ever a danger for you writing this stuff when it became like popular? I mean, would, wouldn't they find out who were doing this? Yeah, in the remand jail, my mom didn't want me to do it because she knew about the guards murdering the prisoners and stuff. and So that's why we posted it under a fake name, John, John's Jail Journal. And after I was released and went into the prison system, we felt comparatively safer because the guards weren't routinely murdering the prisoners. It was the other way around. Each building was named after a guard that had been murdered by the prisoners. And because blogs were just starting back then, it took a long time for the prison to really catch up with it, but since then, the prison has classified my blog and all my books as a threat to the security of the institution, and the prisoners aren't allowed access to them. Was there also, like, uh, did a, you know, death penalty, was that in, in the prison you were in? Yeah, Arizona's got the death penalty. Absolutely. It started where they would hang people, back in the early 1900s and there was a woman that they hung she was a serial killer of husbands and I think the, she, they'd got her for killing her boss as well 
And when they hung her, her head snapped off, her body catapulted, and the head rolled over to all the people who were witnessing the execution. And they changed it after that. It, it, it became, I think it went to gas, electrocution, lethal injection. Did you ever talk to any of the prisoners who were on that death row? Well, I ended up in the super maximum security prison for about three or four months by an accident on my legal paperwork. The prosecutor, she'd pulled a number of tricks on me throughout my remand and my sentence was nine and a half years. And one of the sentences, it, I had three little sentences to make nine and a half years. One was 26 months. It was accidentally down as 26 years. So I was fast-tracked to Supermax in Florence, Arizona, where they housed death row. Didn't see the death row guys, but sometimes they would put them in um, a neighboring area, and we, we, we could yell at them over the wall. And my lawyer actually got one of the guys off death row. His name was Ray Crone, Snaggletooth Killer. And a waitress had been found dead near a bar, bite mark on her leg, DNA. Ray had been at the bar. I think he was a mailman. So they snatched Ray. He was the most obvious person for them to get, I suppose. Easy way to solve the crime. Bite mark didn't match his teeth. DNA didn't match either. So the state of Arizona paid an expert witness $50,000 to say the, the teeth matched, even though they knew it didn't. It's so common in America, it's called testilying. They gave Ray five or ten thousand dollars to defend himself. Spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions, prosecuting him. And court is like theatre. Whoever has the most money puts on the best show. So naturally, Ray couldn't put on a very good show of his five or ten grand. And the state of Arizona won. Ray's mom almost had a heart attack. Ray was on death row for ten years. Um, within hours of getting executed multiple times. And my lawyer got on the case. He sued the state of Arizona to release the DNA through federal court. And they didn't want to give it up. And they had to give it up. And it was run through a crime lab. It matched someone in the prison system who confessed to the murder. And it could have been solved as easy as that. state of Arizona didn't even give him an apology. But he did get compensation. And he's helping prisoners on death row get... DNA tests because they cost about two or three hundred dollars these DNA tests but these states all over America are refusing to give the prisoners DNA tests to pay for it because if, if their case unravels these prosecutors and detectives and, and governors of states you know they build their careers on being tough on crime and executing people and if they're proven wrong their careers and reputations and, and Political power and money is is on the line. It's it's there's bigger criminals in the justice system than than there are in the prisons, from what I've seen. If you'll execute someone, if you'll send an innocent person to death row, or, you know what kind of person does that? And they have they never suffer any consequences when they get found out. Yeah, they they you know that's kind of like murder. It's state-sanctioned murder. But what I I can understand if they believe somebody is guilty and then they you know. But even though the person is innocent, but the story you you just told, it's obvious that they knew the guy probably didn't do it. So how could they, you know, with good conscience, continue? Well, what they do is they solve a crime fast, which satisfies the public. A death penalty case is a really big deal for a prosecutor or a detective. 
they get awarded prizes and they get their careers boosted. Yeah, well, yeah, I just can't relate. I mean, I wouldn't want that on my conscience, you know, some innocent guy. Usually they'll they'll snatch a black guy that's got no money and has got criminal history, put him up in an all-white jury, and the guy doesn't stand the chance in hell. And that's what that movie, The Green Mile, that theme that Stephen King picked out, that really happens. Yeah, it's weird that they can live with themselves knowing they've sent innocent people to, you know... Well, the biggest psychopaths are the ones who believe what they're doing is some kind of good to society. And that's, you know, the, the justice system, I guess, just attracts some of those people. Maybe they're thinking, like, well, he's a black guy, he's going to do some other crime anyway, eventually. Maybe that's how they think, you know. They do. But, I, mean, I don't know if you've watched this series, Making a Murderer, but the police had a dislike of Stephen Avery. So they set him up for a rape and an attempted murder. And he did 18 years on that one, and he hadn't done it. And the rapist was still out there raping people. He got released. He was about to be awarded $36 million compensation. And they set him up again. And this all came about because um, they didn't like him in the first place. He was a disposable person. Yeah, it's on uh, Netflix at the moment, I think. Tens of millions of people have watched it since... December when it came out worldwide, 20 million plus in America alone and it really shines light on the corruption, it's not an isolated incident this is happening all across America it's just a well documented incident so well yeah these good old boy networks that set this guy up didn't possibly imagine in their wildest dreams that Netflix would come along and shine a light and expose everything that they've done they thought it was case closed. But, you know, that's got to be worrying to these corrupt prosecutors and detectives all across the country now. <laughs> In case this establishes a whole new genre of documentary and people start unraveling all these other cases. And I hope they do. These cases need to be unraveled. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they should make the DNA mandatory. They should. They should have given them all. DNA testing has shown hundreds of these guys innocent, so they should give all these guys new trials with new DNA. Um, technology's advanced, and you know, you know they should be allowed out, these ones who are innocent. Because also, you know, even if they don't like the guy, even though he's innocent, I mean, they seem to forget the fact that the real criminal is still out there and it's a danger to society. Exactly. But they like to play God. Do you think it's like that in, in uh, Europe as well? It's human nature, isn't it? Human nature, there's always going to be some good, there's always going to be some bad. So I imagine it's everywhere. And, um, you know, there's many prison films and TV series, but what would you say is, I mean, are there any truths of those or are they just like exaggerated or? Both. There's truths and there's exaggerations. So if you watch a, a series like Prison Break, you see characters like Teabag, the booty bandit. You know, I met people like that in prison. But it was also exaggerated because you got two brothers in prison, one's in death row and the others robbed the bank. They would never be housed in the same prison. And also it's practically impossible to escape, maybe? No, it's not impossible. People do escape. Um, like I mentioned, the private prison, some people escaped in Arizona there. 
they can shoot you dead, or you get five to ten years added onto your sentence. From the remand jail, one guy escaped, and he was rearrested running naked down the street in his pink socks because the razor wire had shredded all his clothes off him. And that razor wire has a chemical on it, so your blood doesn't clot, and you're supposed to leave a trail of blood in the direction that you're escaping. <laughs> That's quite sinister. Yeah. Uh, are there a lot of drug-taking in prison? Oh, of course. Prisons have the most drugs than anywhere on the face of the earth, and it's and the hardest drugs. Like I mentioned earlier, most arrests in America are for weed. Most recent figures, 2013, 693,000 people arrested for weed, according to the FBI. So these young people come in, click up with the gang, and they, they're scared, so they start doing what the gang says, and they start shooting up heroin and crystal meth. 90% of the prisoners I was housed in were shooting up. Two-thirds had hepatitis C, deadly disease, can slowly kill you by eating your liver up. And to get treatment for the hepatitis C, they had to quit drugs, but they were choosing to keep taking the drugs and die over getting the treatment. That's how addicted they were, and they're not given anything to help their addiction issues. They're just stressed out to the maximum, which is guaranteed to make them want to try and block that out by taking more drugs. In the films you often see, like in the cell, they have books and they have things and posters and stuff. Did Is that correct or are you allowed to have anything? Yeah, I was allowed to have seven books. There are some prisoners who really get studying and earn degrees and we call those guys the prison intelligentsia. I think the most popular books are people like Stephen King, you know, all the bestsellers and stuff like that. Um, prisoners also will use books for weightlifting. They'll put big books like, you know, War and Peace in a sweater and attach it to a, a broom and, and, and use that as a weight. And the little library, in the last prison I was at, the library, some nights that turned into an outpost for blowjobs and prostitution rackets. You know, did you mentioned that you, 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 did you have like an addiction to, to drugs when you went into prison? I was in denial about my addiction. I said to the therapist, I'm just a weekend party person, go out, do my drugs, get back to work on the weekdays. You know, addict, someone who lives under a bridge and shoots up heroin, has to do that to get through the day. And he's shaking his head at me. He's like, Sean, no, an addict is someone who does drugs to the point where it affects their life. Take a look around you right now. Where are you? Look out the window. Guard with a rifle. Gun tower. And that was the wake-up call I needed to acknowledge that I had an addiction. And Now, he said, well, if you give something up, a negative addiction, you've got to put something in its place. And he taught me that it's all just energy, and I now channel my energy into positive things like karate, body combat, stuff like that. But if there's so much drugs in prison, isn't it hard to like stop being a drug addict when you're in that environment? Yeah, for the majority it is. For me... It was about it was the slap around the face I needed to see what drugs can lead to because the road of drug use is a very long one. When I started, I'd seen Scarface, Pulp Fiction, all these movies, and the fun was high. But each time you do it, fun goes down a little bit, pain goes up, and you're always chasing those early highs. 
And over time, the pain rises above the pleasure, but you're so addicted you can't stop. And I only realized looking at those guys with the hepatitis C, teeth rotting out, yellow jaundice skin, choosing to do drugs over getting the treatment to save their lives. I thought, if I keep going down this road, I'm going to end up like them. You know, I started as a student. SWAT team took me off that road halfway down it. And it made me ashamed of dealing ecstasy and putting people on that road, but I knew I couldn't change my past. So I just pledged to go out and share my story in the hope young people wouldn't make my mistakes. And last year I did 150 talks, spoke to about 20,000 students. And I get loads of feedback from them. And it's hopefully restoring my karma. Who are you working for doing these talks? Is it yourself or are you working for like the government or something like that? Well, I am self-employed. And I also have a public speaking agent out of London. But most of the talks I do are at state schools just through me being self-employed. So if people want to read your books or check out your blog or YouTube, where can they do that? Well, if they go on Amazon and just put in Sean Atwood, S-H-A-U-N-A-T-T Wood, all my books will come up. And if they want to go on my social media, Facebook, YouTube, Blogspot, Twitter, again, everything's just under my name, Sean Atwood. Yeah, and I'll also post some links in the program notes so people can easily just click. Do you have anything you're planning, you know, in the future, in books or... Yeah, I'm writing a book on the war on drugs. And I've just finished a book about two Tonys, the Italian mafia mass murderer serving 141 years who protected me in prison. Like a biography of him? Yeah, he dictated his life story to me. And he worked for the Bonanno crime family who inspired The Godfather. And what about this War on Drugs uh, book? What, what's the angle? What I'm doing is weaving in the stories of multiple people whose lives were drastically affected or got caught up in the War on Drugs. And the whole book, the premise is that we have been lied to. That drug laws were never started to stop people taking drugs because the government cared about that. Drug laws were actually started to put blacks, Mexicans and Chinese coolies in prison during economic downturns. One of the early drug czars, he said the primary reason to outlaw marijuana is its effect on the degenerate races. And the people putting the money up at that time in the early 1900s to get these drugs made illegal were corporations such as the pharmaceutical corporations didn't want people growing medicine in their own backyard as in marijuana plastics didn't want hemp products competing with them forests didn't want hemp as well hemp was about to be mass produced on an industrial scale because the equipment had been manufactured for it so all these industrialists were frightened of the competition that it posed and to this day, President Obama has maintained marijuana as a Schedule One drug as harmful as heroin and more harmful than cocaine. All off the back of these laws that were introduced over 100 years ago that are an anachronism now. And that drug czar, the racist drug czar, he was in power for about 30 years and he took this through the United Nations to the rest of the world. He said to the rest of the world, basically, if you don't, introduce our drug laws, America's not going to trade 
with you. So nearly every country in the world has drug laws because of this. I'll just give you an example of the mindset of this man. Here's what he said. Marijuana can arouse in blacks and Hispanics a state of menacing fury or homicidal attack. During this period, addicts have perpetrated some of the most bizarre and fantastic offences and sex crimes known to police annals. He testified to Congress that coloureds with big lips lure white women with jazz and marijuana. He said there are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the US. Most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos and the entertainers. The satanic music, jazz and swing result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers and any others. Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. And they put out videos showing young people taking weed and then turning into axe murderers and killing their own parents. They said it made you extremely violent, weed. And then after the World War, he said, weed made you so mellow and vulnerable, he completely changed his tune that you would be naturally open to becoming a communist and a communist sympathizer. <laughs> and that was the big threat then, was... was um, activists basically if anyone protesting against wars Nixon picked up on that he could up the ante and put all his people who were protesting against the Vietnam War in, in, in jail because a lot of them were smoking weed he just loved that and he was the one who coined the phrase war on drugs but every president ever since has spent even more money I mean if you look at the Bushes and the Clintons and even Obama each administration has put I think up to about a million non-violent drug offenders in prison. Women never used to go to prison. They're not known to commit violent crimes. Women became the fastest growing prison population. Hundreds of thousands of women in prison in America now. And Obama, you know, he's just pardoned some of these guys and reduced the sentences. But if you look at what he's really done, I mean, that was a handful of people. He has spent major amount of money cracking down on medicinal marijuana dispensaries and if anyone in the world should have access to marijuana it's people with cancer who are going through chemotherapy who basically they're going to die because they can't eat and marijuana is the only thing that gives them appetite there are babies born and these little kids have hundreds of seizures a day and the only thing that can stop them from going comatose and dying is marijuana so there's all these people out there that um, have been deprived of it because of these insane drug wars that have come about from this racist drug czar, Harry Anslinger, and these corporations that don't want anyone to research the medicinal uses of it because look at how much money Big Pharma is making now selling people all these synthetic chemical compounds. Why don't they just start selling weed? You know, they would make just as much money. <laughs> Because you can't patent weed. They've tried to make synthetic compounds from it, and they've marketed those as medicine. But because they're not in the natural form, they're not as effective as the natural form, and they can't patent the natural form and, and profit from it. So they've tried to suppress it. But it, don't you think it's turning around a bit, you know, with all these states legalizing it in America? The reason the states have legalized has got nothing to do with the federal government of America. There are three branches of law. 
in America. There's the federal government, there's the Supreme Court, and there's the states. And the people at the state level who are so sick of their teenage kids getting pulled over by the police and busted with pot and thrown in a jail where they could get raped or murdered and get turned on to the hard drugs. These people at the local level have voted to get rid of these insane marijuana laws. So you've got this odd situation in America now where marijuana is simultaneously legal and illegal. Illegal under federal law, Obama's maintained it as a Schedule One drug versus legal in states like Colorado. So in theory, you could still be arrested in Colorado if, if a cop is acting under federal law. If the federal government wanted to crack down under federal law, it's still a class one drug and they could crack down anywhere in the United States that they wanted to. And they've been doing it on medicinal marijuana dispensaries. It's a strange system they have in America with like different laws and how they, you know, like most countries have like one law for the whole country and that's it. Yeah, well, the branches of government in America are supposed to check and balance each other out. But the corporations, they make so many contributions to the to the politicians and the legislators at the federal level. They try and keep the laws tight so that the companies can maximize their profits. I mean, if you look at the industrial uses of hemp, paper, oil, wax, resin, rope, cloth, pulp, fuel, plastic, food, you know, all this was about to be mass-produced on an industrial scale. Henry Ford, he had a car built entirely from hemp products, which also ran on biofuels, and his vision was that you would just be able to grow all the ingredients and you know the earth would just replace them but instead this cabal of industrialists got together and and based on petrochemicals and built this empire and now look at all the damage that that's caused around the earth and the wars because we're extracting all these resources from the earth and all the fighting that's that's occurring over it if they'd have used hemp and gone the natural way the world wouldn't be in the way it is today. There wouldn't be all, as many problems. Even even popular mechanics said there would be a billion dollar crop of hemp because they'd made this machine called a decorticator which enabled the mass production of these hemp products. They hadn't been able to do it before. And then, and that's why these companies got together to stop it. But now, like you said, it's 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 you know, the people are waking up to it. There's people putting YouTube videos out there all over the world about how it's helping them with their medical situations. And Obama, under Schedule 1, has got it classified as having no medicinal use, which is absolutely absurd. Yeah, I, I know people myself who have decreased their tumors with cannabis oil. Yes, cannabis oil, it was, they knew as early as I think it was the 1970s that it shrunk cancerous tumors in rats. But again, the chemotherapy and the cancer business is in the billions. And, and how, how cheap is it to get cannabis oil versus all these expensive chemotherapy and, and radiation treatment and all this stuff that does so much damage to the human body that that often causes death anyway afterwards? But, you know, if they want to be greedy and make all the money, why don't they just think like, okay, we why don't we make a law that makes it so only... 
this pharmaceutical company is allowed to to sell cannabis oil and anybody else goes to prison, then they can still make the money plus they can help people. Because once it's legal, they can't stop it. Marijuana was called weed because it grew on the side of a road as a weed. Anyone could just grow it in their own backyard. No, but I mean like if, if the law was that it's illegal for everybody except for this pharmaceutical company. You know, if, it did, if they did it like that, then it could benefit everybody and they can still get rich if they want to, you know. Because the established infrastructure is now profiting from industry based on petrochemicals. And we're looking at multi-billion, if not in the trillion dollar uh, infrastructure. You, could, you couldn't overhaul that at this point. Those vested interests are too powerful. So what do you think people can do? What can a normal person do to to work against this? Well, what I do is I just keep putting videos out there. You know, I've researched this drugs book now for two years. And when I tell people the government introduced drug laws not to help people to stay away from drugs because they are harmful, but to just throw blacks and Chinese and Mexican immigrants into prison during economic downturns, you know, people look at me like I'm a conspiracy theorist. So my book is going to be backed up with all this research and I'm going to put more YouTube videos out there and just try and uh, keep informing people and, you know, see where it goes from there. Yeah, and people can always, like, double-check what you've written because... If you do that, you'll find that it's it's true because I've heard this, these stories also myself. So, uh, you know, it's well documented. Yeah, if people go away and research, people like William Randolph Hearst, he was the Rupert Murdoch of the day back then, and he'd invested millions in timber forests. He had 20 million readers in 18 key states, and all that paper from his forests was what he was printing his newspapers on and hemp would have wiped his investment out basically people can research him the DuPonts you know they had patents to make products from oil ranging from nylon stockings to car tires and hemp would have wiped them out they were funded by the Mellon Bank Andrew Mellon owned Gulf Oil so again you got petrochemicals versus hemp John Rockefeller, lots of information there, out there about him. He owned Standard Oil, and he'd invested in the fledgling pharmaceutical companies along with Andrew Carnegie, who wanted people away from natural remedies and onto synthetic drugs, and that's why we've still got this. Today, this clamping down on natural remedies and this big pushing of psychotropic medications especially in America, so many people and, and, and kids as well that they're putting on Adderall and, you know, in the, in the prison that I asked the guys, what was your gateway drug? And they'd say Adderall, Ritalin, all these things that they were prescribed as kids. And the banker who was financing a lot of this back then was Andrew Mellon. And he happened to be Secretary of the Treasury for the United States federal government. So that was the end with the government right away. And it was Andrew Mellon who made his future son-in-law, Harry Anslinger, the drug czar. And it was Harry Anslinger who went off on his racist tirades. I mean, this was around, you know, the early 1900s, lynching black people was at the peak of popularity. So he harnessed that racist 
impetus and was able to get all these laws introduced on the back of it, they said, all right, way we can really demonize it is to change the name from hemp to marijuana because people don't know what marijuana is. It sounds like it's coming out of Mexico, something associated with the Mexicans. And they fooled the public so well that the hemp farmers even voted in these anti-marijuana laws, putting themselves putting themselves out of business. Yeah, that's what a good uh, a good job he did on the public. And the other thing is now the illegal drugs market. I mean, when you make anything illegal, the price shoots up. If you look at the main drugs, heroin, cocaine, weed, they were plants. These drugs are pretty much worthless. But once you made them illegal, the price shot up. That caused this black market, an incentive for criminal organizations to mass-produce drugs all over the world. And now America's spent $2 trillion on the war on drugs, and yet kids in America are saying it's easier for them to get heroin than it is to get alcohol. Because criminal gangs will sell heroin in schools, but alcohol, the government regulates it. Yep, so it's been a real success for the taxpayers. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it looks uh, hopeful for the future, like 100 years from now? Do you think it will be different? Yeah, I do. I think it's happening right in front of our eyes, but the old guard, the establishment, who are profiting from the existing order of things, are going to put up a big fight to stop the decriminalization worldwide. But the young generations now are so savvy because they're getting all this information off the internet. And some of these kids ask me a lot of questions about this stuff in the schools. And these people are eventually going to take over the reins of power. So I think it is just a matter of time before that old guard dies off. And these younger, more dynamic people get in and make some changes. Cool. That's a good point to finish with, I think. So uh, thank you a lot for talking to me. It was very interesting. Thanks for having me on, Alex. And I'll be sure to post those links also so people can check out your your stuff. That would be great. Go to seanatwood.com to find out more. And like Sean mentioned, if you just Google Sean Atwood, you can find him all over the place on YouTube and Facebook, etc. and Twitter. And what you're hearing now in the background is a track called One Last Kiss from the album Beyond the Clouds by Dr. Frankenrhyme. Go to drfrankenrhyme.bandcamp.com if you want to hear more. And in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com, I'll also post some links to Dr. Frankenrhyme's YouTube and Facebook. Lastly, after talking to Sean, and hopefully for you as well, listening to Sean, I hope you appreciate the freedom you have. But not only that your body is free, because true freedom is in the mind. (laughs) 